Welcome to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for divergent perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivim Panim Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. Everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Tsarich Iun podcast, brought to you by Yeshivat Oraita. My name is David Silverstein, and today I am joined by my fellow Rebbe and friend at Yeshivat Oraita, formerly from Oakland, California. I think our first guest we've had on the Tsarich Iun podcast, who has its roots has his roots in the West Coast. So, and that is the one and only Rav Judah Dardik. Rav Judah, thank you so much for coming on the Tsarich Iun podcast. Thanks for having me. So the topic that I want to talk about today is a topic which um, I think is very relevant and is a topic which I think unfortunately doesn't get enough press. Um, And that really is the topic of Musser and why it is that Musser is not utilized educationally um, heavily in the context of schooling, whether that's elementary school, whether that's high school, whether that's even um, post-high school. Oftentimes, I think when people think about Musser and the Musser schmooze, they imagine sort of some rabbi yelling or sort of like, you know, speaking very harshly to his students about something that they're doing wrong. But you, of Judah, actually have developed a whole course uh, on Musser or based on the teachings of the Musser masters. And I think one of the things that I've learned from sort of seeing you teach and looking at your material is realizing that actually the world of Musser is actually much more complex. And not only is it, so compl- not only is it more complex intellectually, but actually, practically, it can actually serve as an extraordinary medium to help people's religious growths really at every stage of their life. So just as a quick intro, if you had to sort of define, you know, what is Musser? You know, obviously, Musser can mean anything to anybody, but what would be the Judah or the Rabbi Judah definition of what exactly is Musser? Oh, love the question. So I, I very much agree with you. Musser is not, let me start with what Musser is not. Musser is not what it's colloquially said to be. Uh, the minute I hear someone say, I'm going to give you Musser, so the, the phrase or the verb give you and Musser don't really go together because give you Musser is code for I'm going to tell you everything that's wrong with you and I'm going to give you a really hard time and you're probably going to feel terrible about yourself afterwards. Except that that really has nothing to do with what Rabbi Sral Salanter was doing in founding the Musser movement and nothing to do with what Musser truly is. That's just somebody berating you. Musser, like I'll give you a few other people's definitions and, and I'll take it to my own. Um, if you look in the writings of uh, Rav Elyalopian, so he says that Musser is helping the heart to feel what the mind already knows. You can look at Rav Shlomo Wolbe, the uh, um, Ali Shore, says that Musser is building an internal world. Uh, Rav Krumbein out of Gush says that Musser is how to live. Musser has everything to do with becoming a whole and more evolved human being. And so, you know, to get back to your original question, uh, my, defini- my definition of Musser is strategies and tactics and techniques for evolving and growing into the best you that you can be. And it has nothing to do with feeling terrible about yourself or most of all telling someone else what's wrong with them has everything to do with evolution and development. 
So let's sort of like uh, pick up on one specific angle here. Obviously, there are different ways to conceptualize and think carefully about uh, different definitions of Musser. But I think oftentimes when people think about Musser in the yeshiva context, they imagine sort of the Musser Seder. Right? The Musser Seder basically is the half an hour unit or a 45 minute unit or a 20 minute unit where students take a break from their heavy investment in the world of uh, Talmud and study a classical work of Musser. I think oftentimes it's focused on, you know, the laws related to Lashon Hara. And uh, I was doing some research in preparing for this podcast, and uh, I forgot exactly who made this observation. Um, but somebody mentioned that, in a certain sense, it's kind of a strange starting point to think about focusing on the rules of Lashon Hara. And he was arguing that sort of what's motivating uh, this sort of desire to have our Musser study be focused specifically there, the rules of Lashon Hara, at least it's sort of codified by the Mishnah by the Chafetz Chaim, right, sort of resemble a standard halachic code. Right? In a certain sense, what you're sort of doing is like learning more halacha and calling it a Musr Seder. Right? Not that it's bad, but it's certainly not the standard sort of inspirational works you would think about. It's a different type of code which focuses less on or doesn't focus on Hilchot Shabbat and focuses instead on the laws of Lashon Hara. But I think there's another way to conceptualize Musr, which is to think less about one specific application of the law, for example, Lashon Hara, and really see it as something which can sort of um, inspire and make us better in terms of a large gamut of our religious lives. So for a few minutes, if we could just focus on the question of ethics, right? What is it about the study of Musser that would make somebody sort of more ethically refined? Now, obviously, feel free here to pick up on any school of Musser. There are different schools. But what would you recommend if somebody says, you know what, I'm deeply invested in halachic norms. I feel committed to the halachic process, but I feel like there's something missing in my religious life. Halacha obviously doesn't have an answer for every single situation in the world. And I feel like there's something missing, right? So how would Musser come along sort of fill that hole? The question is fascinating because I'm not sure that contemporary Jewry and the world that we live in has really accepted the principles and premises of the Musser movement in the first place. And I'll, I'll go with exactly your example. Uh, the idea of making a Musser Seder about Hilchot Lashon Hara. So the seeming upside is that now, well, now we're talking about Beit Gamla and it's all too easy and has, I think, been the case in uh, certainly in Western Jewry for the last movement of the last, let's say, 35 to 45 years, the movement towards defining Frumkite in terms of Beit Gamla and so here, oh, wow, this is great. This is Benin Chavero. We're going to have interpersonal mitzvah. We're going to be focused on what is it we say to other people and about other people. And okay, that sounds like a great Musr topic, except that you're quite right. The minute that the source text is Sefer Chavetz Chaim, Sefer Chavetz Chaim is going to give me the laws of when I can or can't speak about someone else. When is it a mitzvah to say something negative? In most cases, it's, it's an Avera, it's, it's transgression, it's Usr, and so I can't, and I'll know those things. But all of that is, in essence, ancillary to what it is to be a Musr-influenced personality. Because Musser is meant to transform the self, not simply give you another set of rules. If Musser was really just the uh, final exposition of Ben Dam Chaveru Halacha, because overall we, we have very specific rules for how we deal with Ben Dam Lamako Mitzvot, I can tell you exactly when and where and you know, how much matzah I should be eating and you know, does this qualify, does that qualify, what is the definition of matzah? Ben Dam Lamako Mitzvot have ex- exceptional clarity in the world of Halacha. The issue with Bin and Dama Mitzvot is that they're exceptionally vague. 
because everything is case specific. So in general, is it a good thing to visit someone in the hospital? Yes, but if you outstay your welcome, you're there too long, they're exhausted, they need to rest, and you're still there chatting away. Or frankly, they're embarrassed and they need to get out of their hospital bed and go to the bathroom, but they can't do that because the gown is not particularly covering them and you're still sitting there. So now you've left somebody who was supposed to be a nice thing is not a nice thing because it has a lot to do with the situation. And that's the nature of Ben Adam L'Chavero Mitzvot, that you can't really give much, much more than general principles that then have to be applied. Now, here's where we get back to Musser. The idea of using Sefer Chafetz Chaim as a Musser Seder text gives us specific, definitely principles and specific information to help behave in a proper manner around talking around other people, but it has not necessarily achieved anything in terms of the transformation of self. The ultimate goal of the Muslim movement would be that a person is also concurrently, and I would say all the time, that the Seder is the 20 to 45 minutes of learning, but if one is living a Muslim life, would spend 24 hours a day, or as long as they are conscious, thinking about what is the experience of the other person? How can I do what I am doing in a more refined and deeper way? Is there a way in which I can better remove, for example, depending on the school of Musser, but better remove my sense of self, my ego from this? Is there a way in which I could be all the more thoughtful about how the other person's experiencing this, how to do, and it's not just been done the chavero, it's also been done the makom, how can I do mitzvot in a purer way, a deeper way, and a way that touches the deepest aspects of who I am? So if you had to give a suggestion, say picking up on your model, if you had to give a suggestion, thinking about a text, like let's say, for example, we'll talk more about the experiential elements of Musser uh, shortly, but at least for now, in terms of the more cognitive aspects, if you had to give a text, right, if somebody said to you, you know, Rav Judah, you know, I want to have a Musser Seder in my yeshiva every day, obviously by no means are we minimizing the power of the Sefer Chafetz Chaim. But that being said, right, what would be a text, right, that would sort of anchor a person's identity in this sort of more overarching uh, aspirational element that you're describing. Yes, for sure. I would not want to speak any Lashon Hara about Sefer Chavz <laughs> or its role in the Yeshiva curriculum. That is not my goal for the day. Um, look, there are a whole bunch, and it really depends on what you're looking for. Uh, I'll give you a few different examples. Rather than learn something which is effectively halachot ben adam l'chavero, if a person had a Seder in, for example, Orchot Tzadikim. So Orchot Tzadikim is a particular derech within Musr, which suggests that, all, that every midah has its place. And so if I can know more about the place and the place that a midah, that a particular characteristic does not belong, then I can better know when I want to employ my midot. If a person went over to something like, um, let's say, Mesil Yasharim, now Mesil Yasharim has a fascinating and rather unusual introduction. It's so rare that you find the hakdama, the introduction to a sefer, that tells you, my sefer has nothing new to tell you. But he's making a point because he goes on to say, the value of the sefer, says the Ramchal, is in its constant review because he's coming from a, one particular sub-strand of Musr that really all flows from Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. You can think of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter's writings as being the equivalent of sunlight. And then each of the schools that came from it are the different uh, shades or colors, hues that come when the light goes through a prism. And so one of those is the notion of awareness. And the Mesil uh, Sharm is focusing in on that to say, well, maybe part of the problem is that I'm just not thinking carefully enough. I'm acting without thinking. And so if I'm always aware, then something will come of that. But then one could go over to Slabadka, and now we're getting into the sorts of texts that are really more, I think, transformative. Because the first two have a bit more to do with monitoring one's behavior in, in, in a larger context. But if one's reading texts from Slavatka, if one is reading, I'm a big fan of uh, Rav Dessler's Mechtev Me'eliyahu, 
partially translated to Strive for Truth, because what he's doing there is offering philosophical essays that have insights into human psychology and human nature, and when one has a regular Seder in these sorts of things and starts to think much more broadly about why do I do what I do, where is this coming from in me, what's truly motivating me, how do I get my, the entirety of myself, not simply my mind, engaged, because that, that was part of what Rabbi Shal Salanto brought to the world, was that people thought, oh, if I just think about it enough, I'll be able to know to do the right thing and do it well. He said you really need the entirety of the persona. Psychology has to be involved here. Depths of feeling have to be involved here. How can I access the entirety of me and put that in the employ of better living and better thinking and most of all, better acting? So how would you sort of um, apply exactly some of the descriptions you're talking about here uh, to think about different stages of human life? Um, from what you're talking about, it seems like you know, Musa really can be taught at any age, right? In theory, if you're creating a Musa curriculum, there's no reason why it couldn't you know, be taught to a third grader. Obviously, you'd have to be able to anchor it in something which is relevant for where the third grader is. But it's certainly, I think, not the case right now that many of the texts you're describing are part of the standard uh, Orthodox yeshiva curriculum. Um, not only the classics like Misilat Yacharim, but even sort of modern works right, like Midot Haraya, Rav Kook, and other uh, works that are related, at least loosely, to the genre of Musser, I think oftentimes in the American scene, the Anglo scene, um, aren't very much part of sort of the educational vision. So if you could sort of have, you know, a model in place for thinking about how we would sort of implement sort of a educational system rooted in Musser, right, how, how would you think about that, right? Do you imagine, for example, having a class where you're studying texts? Do you imagine some type of like um, Musr Chabura, right? Some type of group setting where people are not only dialoguing about the text, but dialoguing about their experience with the text, meaning still focusing on the level of the analytical, of the cognitive, right? How do you imagine Musr becoming more part of our worldview, right, through the lens of curriculum? And does it sort of follow standard curricular paradigms, which involves exams and you know, other types of assessments? Or is it something different that sort of stands outside of you know, the classic um, educational model? And so I, I do believe that it stands outside of what you're calling the classical model in that the test of Musser would really be a test in which one watches someone else's behavior. But ultimately, you can't really test it because you would have to know what's going on inside their heart. And we don't really have access to that. However, I could see a real place in elementary school, middle school, etc. And it would involve a few things. Uh, the first is certainly the study of text, whether Hebrew text or there's quite a bit that's been translated. Um, I failed to mention before Ruf Krumbein's book, um, Musser for Moderns. He's a wonderful set of essays that gives a person this larger view because he's not working from a particular text or theological problem or halachic issue as much as to describe psychology and midot and then you know what is going on inside human beings as we function and as we struggle our way through. And so one could certainly be learning texts with preteens, teens, etc. But what I would, the way I would see it playing out would involve several other things. Uh, the idea of the Musser cloys was one of Rabbi Shal Salanter's innovations. And the idea that if you get people together, you know, Musser is not the sort of thing that you learn once and then can recall. You, know, you, you spit it back for the test. And because you knew the answer was the Carolingian dynasty, now you've got that and you'll be able to have that and it's on your test paper and you knew it and you get the points. Rather, what, it's much more about can you recall in the moment 
when you need it, the kind of behavior you're looking for or the feeling that you've tried to engender in, one, in yourself about doing a mitzvah well or the sense of, of another human being. And so the Musser Kloys was the idea, the notion, and this is you know, well before uh, group therapy had really hit the world in the way that it exists nowadays and this sort of group support, but I could envision using uh, Musser Kloys in of groups of, whether it's preteens or teens, who get together and talk about, in a regular fashion, this is something I'm struggling with, and then get together, for example, bi-weekly, weekly, and say, well, you know, here's, here's what I'm struggling with, and here's what's happened since the last time the six of us in this cloy spoke. You know, I've been working really hard on trying to be more respectful of my parents, even when they are incredibly frustrating to me, and I just need to bite my tongue. And so other people can then offer group support, and they can say, well, this is what I do when those situations come up. And then you come back, you know, a week later, and say, well, how, how was it? Well, you know, this week I've been working, I had a little success in this, I had a setback in this, and then you can start delving more deeply and analyze, well, what was the trigger? Why didn't I handle the situation as well? And by the way, student number two, what have you been working on? Oh, I've been working on trying to uh, get up and, you know, more and get to shul more time, or get to school, more timely fashion for Minion. Okay, well, what's holding you back? And everybody has a discussion. Other people say, well, this works for me, this works for me. And you come in a week later, and in, 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 a, in a, uh, a funny way, it's somewhat like the other forms of group support. You know, if we imagine the, uh, the you know, image of people showing up in a group and saying, it's been, uh, you know, it's been six months since my last drink at Alcoholics Anonymous. And everyone says, okay, that's great. Tell us what's going on. What were your struggles of your week? Well, this is a very similar kind of group support. That's another thing I could envision working really, really well because it allows people to be authentic to be together with their peers. This is not necessarily something that requires a teacher to be there. It does require students to be honest and clear and open with each other and vulnerable, but they're all sharing and they're all going through a lot of the same experiences. One of the great things that comes out of a Musser Cloys is the sense that I'm not the only one. I thought I was the only one struggling with this. Actually, every other person in this cloys, every other person in this group, or most other people are struggling with the same thing, and they have interesting and valid insights, and I now feel supported, and we're all gonna work on this together. It allows for you know, other options as well. If Musser is less so uh, being taught only from a text, and more out of, can you find three people today who look like they could use some help, and spend a little time helping them? Could you find two people today, and make that a daily project, Musser becomes a part of life and students of whatever age, it doesn't matter if they're in first grade or sixth grade or 12th grade, but if they walk around and their orientation is towards what is the experience of the other. Like I know as a parent, one of the things we do all the time is that you try to help a child to relate to other people by saying, well, how would you feel if someone did that to you, right? Your sibling is crying because you took away the toy or you did this or that. So how would you feel? And teaching people, what are we doing? We're teaching empathy and saying, well, okay, like I can actually feel that. That's, that's hard. That would be painful for me. I would be upset to be excluded. Well, taking our religious lives as well as our social lives and giving a constant emphasis on how is the other person feeling and turning our eyes outward. We spend so much time thinking about what's in it for me, what's good for me, how am I doing? Well, start learning to look around at everybody else and see how are they doing and if you walk around the world and you've trained young people from a very young age to always be asking, what is the current moment like for that person? Well, that's transformative. I remember one time I was on an airplane uh, flying from Israel to New York, and I was sitting next to a Hasidic guy, so we were talking a pretty significant amount of time on the plane about different issues related to Torah, and then I personally am intrigued by the school of Musa related, at least associated with the uh, yeshiva of Slobodka, 
I have a family connection there. Um, but beyond that, you know, maybe you'll speak for a few minutes about the unique uh, contribution of the uh, altar of uh, Slobodka. If I remember, I was talking to this Hasidish guy, Israeli Hasidish guy, and he told me that he learned in he had learned in Slobodka in Bnei Brak. So I, w- I was like really excited. Oh my God, this guy is a you know student or a former student in Slobodka in Bnei Brak. And I said to him, you know, how much do you learn of like you know the Musar of the altar? And he looked at me like I was an alien. You know, he was like, you know, it's, it's Slobodka in name only. In other words, what we really do in Slobodka is what we do in any other yeshiva. You know, we learn. Gemara three Sidarim, but like the days of, uh, you know, the Musar yeshivas as being sort of heavily rooted in actual uh, study of Musar is something uh, of yesteryear. So just in terms of your own experience uh, teaching and studying, right, what was the unique contribution of the world of Slobodka? I mean, so many of the great Rosh yeshivas of the 20th century came, came from Slobodka, with Yaakov Kamenetsky and Rav Ruderman, and there's sort of a whole school of extraordinary personalities who were graduates of uh, that yeshiva, I think even Nerius Ro, I think Ruben wanted to sort of replicate on some level of Slobodka. And I have a picture in my house of the altar, and you know, he's so refined and dignified in his dress. And there's a sense that the Slobodka students were supposed to dress a certain way and look a certain way. And what exactly was uh, the core educational principle of the altar uh, beyond the slogan of the greatness of man? I mean, obviously, that's a powerful hashtag, and it says a lot about his educational philosophy. In terms of translating his thought to your students and thinking about how it applies in our world, right? How do you see Slobodka, or do you see Slobodka being a relevant variable for sort of uh, think teaching and living Musser in the 21st century? 100% agree. I happen to love it that you're the kind of person who sits on an airplane next to somebody from Slobodka and wants to engage in conversation for a long time. I have sat on many flights next to Hasidim in the last few years, and my first response is, I go to sleep. Because frankly, I go to sleep when I'm sitting next to non-Hasidim also. I'm just tired on the flight. So kudos to you, Rabbi. Well, to just, just to clarify, lest anybody think that's unique to Hasidim on my, my plane coming to Israel this past trip, I was sitting next to two uh, evangelical Christians from South Carolina who were actually also equally as fascinating. So I think my intrigue in talking to people outside my orbit expands both to Jews and non-Jews alike. Love it. I love talking to people, just not on airplanes. <laughs> but all right. Um, Slobodka, I think, is especially relevant in our day. Um, it's interesting to note that Slobodka's opposite number, known as Novartic, which I think is a highly misunderstood school of Musser, but it's perhaps a discussion for another time. Um, Novartic was the most popular school of Musser, as I understand it, in Europe on the eve of the war. However, we live in a very different world, and Novartic is for sure tougher. And Slobodka, that slogan of Godless Adam, the greatness of man, extends very deeply, and I think is particularly relevant in today's world, because we live in a world which, for whatever reasons, and interesting uh, sociological and psychological insights can be offered, but so many young people, and frankly adults, do not believe in themselves, and do not believe that they have a great deal to offer, And so Slobodka swoops in and says something very interesting. Whereas multiple other schools of Musser attempted to really change the personality and change the behavior, identify that which is wrong, it's sort of like a doctor. You come in, you identify the illness. If there is a tumor that needs to be removed, let us excise it. Slobodka came in and said, no, 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 no. Nothing needs to be healed per se. Nothing needs to be removed. There's no treatment. The problem is you're not really seeing who and what you are. And that's where the greatness of man, Godless Ha'adam, comes in here. Because from a Slobodkin perspective, if you could really look in the mirror and see just how incredible a human being you are, how powerful, 
how influential you are, how much of a difference you could make, and you truly believe that and accepted that, you don't have to work at that point. It will suddenly, it will just change. In and of itself, it will change your behavior, your way of seeing yourself, your way of seeing everybody else. Why? Because, you know, one example, you know, that speaks to me is a person who has uh, really fine motor coordination, I mean, excellent motor coordination. And you realize that such a person could be an incredible neurosurgeon. They could be there and spend hours very delicately you know, conducting surgeries and removing uh, bullets from right near the spinal column or the brain and saving lives. It's, it's a phenomenal thing. And you see such a person and they are waiting tables. Now, I am all for waiters and waitresses. I love a good restaurant and I'm very glad that somebody doesn't drop a single dish or whatnot. But if I knew somebody who had the training of a phenomenal neurosurgeon, and I said, okay, well, so what are you, uh, what are you doing these days? I say, well, I'm waiting tables. I say, well, why not in surgery? So you know, I'm the best waiter in this entire restaurant. I have not dropped a dish in 14 years. And it doesn't matter how crowded the restaurant is and how fast I'm moving. I never spill a drop of soup over the edge of the bowl when I'm bringing it out of my tray. I say, that's great, but do you understand what you could be doing with your gifts, your coordination? What you Then if, let's say the person said, well, I'm now a neurosurgeon and uh, you know, I see one patient a day Say, why? Well, because I really just enjoy golf and relaxation and other things. See, but there are so many people on the list who would give everything to have your care, your medical care, because you are somebody who could make such an incredible difference. And so when we live in a world where, you know, the, uh, the entertainment, which, it, again, I'm, I'm not against entertainment in and of itself at all. Uh, entertainment can be enlightening and helpful and relaxing, etc. But when entertainment becomes the goal, and then you introduce the vodka to the mix, a person looks in the mirror and says, whoa, there's so much I could be doing in my life. If I made myself a more active person, the problem is I didn't really think I had anything to contribute. So I spend my time doing whatever feels good, and that's lovely, and it's not a bad life. But if young people and adults had any Slobodkin understanding or deeper Slobodkin understanding of, whoa, I have something incredible to contribute, my presence my forethought, my actions make a huge effect. There are ripples going far and wide. And what I choose to do and how I use my time changes the world. So all of a sudden people just behave differently. It doesn't require um, you know, active, conscious efforts of control of you know, resisting impulse. If I see myself as a cultured, refined human being, I start to behave that way. That's part of why in Slobakta, as you mentioned, they would dress really well. And Slobodka was for sure an elitist yeshiva. The elite went to Slobodka and were told and believed, and rightfully so, you have something incredible to offer the world. Now go do it. And so it's incredibly relevant and powerful in our day because part of what I see happening with young people is that they don't really believe that they have anything to offer. And if you don't have anything to offer, well, then you don't offer it. But if you start to realize how much of an impact you make on the people around you, and sometimes it's as simple as realizing how much the people around you make an impact on you. Because if looking in the mirror means, I look in the mirror and I see myself and say, whoa, there's something tremendous I could be doing right now. I wanna go do it. Of course I wanna make more in my life. And the corollary within Slovakia is I look at the other person and say, wow, like I would run. You know, if I had a Gadol Batora was coming by and had the opportunity to carry their briefcase, 
to, to drive an incredible human being and to spend 15 minutes in the car driving them from point A to point B, what a privilege. I have specific memories. I got to spend a little bit of time with Gadayudo Schwartz, that's all, who I think was just one of the most remarkable human beings I've ever met and somebody I deeply admired. And I got to drive him around for a little bit. I jumped at the opportunity. I cleared my schedule. Well, what if one looks at every human being, and the, the author of Slobodka wrote about this, Rufnas and Finkel wrote about that, how, or it was written about him, the way that he would treat guests, and that if the guest was, in, was a Gadol Torah or somebody of, of renown, he was waiting on them hand and foot, but, and here's the important part, even people who were not, a pauper who came to his table, he was still helping them out and waiting on them because Slobodka involves not only seeing the greatness in me, it's also the greatness in you. And this person who's been influenced by Slobodka Musser and walks around the world and sees every human being and says, wow, what a person, or makes an effort to try to find that which is beautiful about the person, all of a sudden loves them, wants deeply to help them, and is incredibly concerned for their welfare. And so when I see the, the greatness of man in you and in me, all of a sudden, by seeing it in you, I just, I want to think about you and how I can help you and make your life better. And that's going to lead to refinement that goes way beyond basic halachic norms. Am I allowed to hurt you? God forbid. Of course not. That's us, sir. Am I allowed to cheat you? No, of course. That's us, sir. But what if beyond the halachic floor, I was reaching for the infinite halachic ceiling and was just sort of really non-halachic ceiling, going further and further to say, what can I do to make your life better, to help you out? And I do that because I also look in the Slobodkin mirror and see I'm a person who could really make a difference for you. It's so interesting because uh, there were a few articles that I had read over the past few years that I think uh, directly sort of uh, touch upon what we're talking about. One was an article by, a ra- I don't know if he's a rabbi or a psychologist named Aaron Hirsch Fried, who had an article in Chakir, it's accessible online. He's my professor in graduate school. Oh, so he, uh, you, know who, you know him personally. So he, he wrote an article where the content was excellent, but I think really the title really is what sort of drew me in initially. The title is, Is There a Disconnect Between Torah Learning and Torah Living? And if so, how can we connect them, a focus on Midos? And it's sort of like hard to imagine, right? A world where like, you know, you have people who are deeply invested in halachic norms and somehow they're behaving in a way which, you know, doesn't reflect uh, personal refinement and to be totally precise, you know, profoundly uh, engaged and involved midot. There's a parallel article I read uh, by a rabbi, I think from Canada named Anthony Knopf, who had an article also accessible online called Why Many Jews Prioritize Mitzvot Binam Lamakom, why, pri- why People Prioritize uh, Mitzvot There Between Man and God Over Mitzvot Binam Lechavero, right, between interpersonal commandments. And I think one of the things that you're sort of discussing here and sort of highlighting is that because Musr is holistic in terms of the way in which it impacts the personality, so it will basically not only make a person more uh, evolved and confident in terms of their own halachic norms, but it will sort of plug any halachic lacunas that could be there because it's not really touching one specific aspect. What it's doing really is sort of changing the person in his totality, and therefore he has sort of a maximal, maximalist vision of the way in which he wants to impact the world. Given the example you mentioned, like if you see somebody walking you know, with heavy boxes, so there's no formal halachic requirement to go help them in that moment. But if you're a Musser-oriented person, right, you sort of instinctively see that as something which is definitional to what it means for you and for humanity to reflect their Selma Lokim. Uh, one of the things I think about in terms of listening to, the way, listening to the way you describe it is, right, there seems to be a lot of overlap here between, I would say, Musser, as you're talking about it, and different schools of, let's say, positive psychology. Uh, I'm certainly not an expert in the world of positive psychology, but I have read quite a few books of Sean Acker. 
Um, and I'm wondering, like, in terms of thinking about how you um, implement Musser both into your life as a person and also as an educator, right, do you think there are non-Jewish texts um, that are also relevant in terms of utilize them as Musser works? You know, for example, I read a book not that long ago, it's very popular now, called Atomic Habits. I read a book called Before Happiness. And even though what you're describing is sort of the Jewish version of, uh, you know, these books, there certainly is a lot of carryover between uh, the most you're talking about and what's going on in the academy in terms of positive psychology. So ha do you try to integrate in terms of your own practice of Musser, uh, classical Jewish texts with some more uh, contemporary iterations? I do. Um, in the Musser course that I teach at the yeshiva, I incorporate in a great deal of psychology, not just positive psychology, I would actually expand that even further, that psychology as a discipline and as a field of, of study and inquiry has been focused on many different things, but among them, psychology of motivation, what drives us, trying to understand at a much deeper level, and this is going back to the, the original roots, uh, Freud and his students and, and so on, try to understand what, what drives me, where do certain things come from within me, uh, what sorts of early traumas or difficulties might shape the personality and lead me to midot and character and behavior that's not really what I want it to be, but that one who studies psychology Absolutely. It is, it is a form, really, of Musser, and one of the things that I love about what I find in excellent Musser Svarim is a, an incredible attunement uh, to the psychological profile of man and insights into how people work. Rav Cook has one of my favorite, and, and that's saying a lot, one of my favorite of his piskaot, his pieces, is one in which he says, if you want to understand or see proof that the Torah is divine, he says, study Torah and then study psychology. Why? Because as you study psychology and you realize how human beings work, and then you study Torah and see just how incredible a life system and uh, set of insights this is, so that has to be from the one who designed human psychology. It's a great piece, but it speaks here to the idea that uh, Musser is wide-ranging. In a certain sense, we talk about Mus the Musser movement as a formal movement with specific features and designs as dating back to Rizal Salanter in the 19th century. But you could make the argument in the case that Musser really is as old as human beings. Ever since the first human being said, I'd like to be better, that was the birth of the Musser movement in that sense. And so the study psychology absolutely belongs in Musser. Uh, if you were to come to my home and look at my shelves, I have my svarim uh, divided by, by sections. And so I have my Chumash section, my Gemara section, my Mishnah section, you know, different areas of thought. Uh, we have a side room which is full of texts from of psychology, mostly my wife's, but also my own. Um, but I have a couple of psychology books that are actually sitting right in my Musser shelf because they're just so on point. And in the larger picture of what you're asking, the study of psychology, yes, psychology, but also really all psychology, offers tremendous value in the world of Musser because Musser is ultimately not about simply a set of halachot or even the particular techniques that this school of Musser or this Sefer may offer as much as trying to delve very, very deep into the personality. And there's an interesting divide to be looked at between universal insights that come out of a Musser Sefer that we can all use and then things that really can't be put into a Musser Sefer at all because it's 100% about me, my psychology, my background, and getting into, oh, 
That's where this comes from in me. That's a message I've been carrying since I was in childhood. That is a lesson I learned along the way that was really not, it's not helping me at this point in my life. Uh, and so taking from there and plugging it back in to say, well, how do I use that to understand myself better, to transform my, my personality and thus my behavior and become more the person I want to be, the overlap is tremendous. So obviously, you know, we've been talking for up until now about all the potential you know, positive benefits that are there if a person focuses on Musser, that if a person really becomes a Musser-oriented personality, he can have a more holistic, inspiring sort of religious life. And that does raise the obvious question, which is, you know, sort of well, where has Musser gone, right? Why is it that, you know, there aren't more classes in different yeshivot, or why is it that there isn't, you know, a whole Musser curriculum for high schools, right? What happened to the world of Musser? The world of Musser was so dominant, at least in certain Lithuanian yeshivas, and now it seems like, you know, beyond the 30-minute Musser Seder where they're learning very specific texts or a periodic Musser schmooze, it seems like Musser is something which, you know, you do when you have a few minutes, but not, it's not really taken seriously as something that has to be practiced and engaged uh, regularly. Now, I have a theory on this, which is I think that oftentimes uh, contemporary Judaism is sort of defaulting back to forms of religious expression which are hyper-particular. Um, you know, oftentimes you know, when people think about Judaism, they default back to kashras, to Shabbos, to the laws of, of Nida. And these are things that really are unique to the Jewish people. And I think, you know, especially in light of the Enlightenment and the rise of reform and other types of uh, groups who are sort of advocating more universal visions of Judaism or of sort of universal applications of, uh, of the world. So Judaism or traditional Jewish community oftentimes, you know, pushes back at least uh, subconsciously and says, wait a second, I want to anchor my identity, not in something which is universal, rather something which is more particular. And in a certain sense, the Talmud being like the central part of the curriculum is also a countercultural sort of emphasis on particularism, right? Because Torah Shabbat is our unique covenant uh, with God, and it's not something that's studied by anybody else. So I think what happened basically, and this is somewhat speculative, I think that you know, Musser was sort of adversely affected by this trend. Right, that Musser, as you mentioned before, has like a universal appeal. A lot of things that we're talking about and bettering ourselves personally, right, could be equally applicable for a Jew and a non-Jew. So I think that, you know, because we're so so focused on Jewish particularism right now, so things that are more universal, one of them being Musser, oftentimes sort of gets pushed to the side. I'm curious if you think of any other reasons why people may have a resistance to incorporating Musser into the curriculum. Because presumably, the way you're describing it, there's really only a positive and seemingly no negative, right? So what could be some potential downfalls of a heavy focus on a Musser curriculum? Good. So I agree. I do think that the orientation of the modern community towards Ben and Makom, between ritual performance and mitzvot, is uh, is working against most of being in the curriculum. I think there are several other things as well. Uh, as a teacher, as an educator, in a classroom of first graders or seventh graders or high schoolers, it doesn't really matter. Um, it's also challenging that Musser is really hard to to track and to offer metrics. Uh, we live in a world that loves metrics, and we want to know how is my child, how is you know little Johnny doing in Chumash? He got a 93, and he was able to recall every Rashi when asked. Oh, that's great, little Johnny. And how's he doing in Mishnah? Wonderful. How's he doing in Midot? So you know, when I went to school, they had a little Midot section of the report card. It was not done on a scale of zero to or one to a hundred. It wasn't done like all the other classes. It was like a one, two, or three. And it was even also a little bit more specific. It had to do with like displays courtesy to others. One, two, or three. Why? Because these are really, really hard to pin down and make something that you can be clear about and get a clear answer. It's 
obviously remarkably difficult to know what's going on inside another person, how much they were struggling. From a Muslim perspective, someone who struggles terribly to say a nice word to somebody who is, you know, really uh, has been problematic for them, to say the least, and is able to say something that's halfway courteous, may have achieved more than the warm welcome of, some, of one person to a very dear friend. But we can't know that without knowing what's going on inside. So number one, it's particularly difficult to put that into a curriculum. And also, it's not necessarily all text. A lot of it has to do with practice. That's one piece. Um, I think a second piece is that because Musser is indeed so psychological, not all educators, even gifted educators, are necessarily psychologically attuned to who their students are and what's going on. And you would really have to have that facility to make this something that's easily taught more than, well, let's do the following project and let's learn this book. Um, I also think, and this is more of a societal uh, issue, is that we love to succeed. We live in a world in which we're very, very busy and we want to succeed and we want to know that we succeeded, hence the metrics, but that we, we want to feel like we did it well. Musser is never ending. There is no end. There's no point at which you say, wow, today I am a Baal Musser. Today I have perfected my character. It is the endless quest that will never be fulfilled. And whether you're a teacher in a classroom who knows that come June, your students will be finished, or whether you are the student who says, like, this, this doesn't end, but that's the point. And so it's important. It's part of why I love Slobodka and the positive spin on it is to show you that actually it can feel really good along the way. I'm not looking for other things in my life to end either. I'd like for them to keep going because I enjoy them. To the extent that one can make the study of Musser and the work on the self enjoyable, and it happens to be that unlike many other disciplines or areas of Jewish expression, this is something you can do all the time. You can be you know, working on yourself, trying to have insights, thinking about refinement of character and why I do things and reminding yourself of things, etc. while you're waiting at the bus stop and wherever you are at any given moment, Musser is available. Frankly, you know, uh, we don't read uh, Torah books in the bathroom, right? But psychology is certainly, even if it does have overlap with Musser, we're okay there. The point is, this is something you can do all the time. But I think that it's been largely lost from the general curriculum because it's so much harder to pin down and it, it doesn't really end. And that's discouraging. Maybe we could spend the last few minutes talking about a school of Musser, which I think is oftentimes misunderstood, and the school of Musser, which are always legends associated with it, and that is the school of Navardic. Uh, you know, in the classic sort of Navardic uh, lore, there's a sense that, you know, the goal was to sort of minimize uh, the ego. Right, that somehow the goal of the experience was the exact opposite of Slobodka, whereas Slobodka focused on the greatness of man, so Novartik's focused on the lowliness of man. And you have all these stories where you know a guy comes into Novartik and you know he's the first day in yeshiva or second day in yeshiva, and he's at the Aron Kodesh, and he's saying, "Oh my God, I'm nothing. I'm terrible. I'm the worst." And he's talking about how pathetic he is, and you know one of the older guys looks at you know his friend, who's also you know been in yeshiva for a long time, and he says to his friend. You see this guy, who does he think he is? He's only been in Shiva for the first week, and already he thinks he's nothing, right? So what exactly is the mystery here, right? What is the psychological insight? What is the educational insight? What was the goal of the Nevardic Yeshiva? And is there any contemporary relevance for people in contemporary Yeshivot to incorporate some Nevardic, right, as part of their sort of larger uh, Musser portfolio? Ah, I was wondering if you were going to raise Novartic. I was like, sitting here the whole time, you're talking about Slobodka. I'm thinking, is he going to go to Novartic? Because that's a, it's a more difficult one. Um, so there is quite a bit of debate or dispute about where exactly Novartic was going. I'll give you my take on it. 
uh, a lot of the stories that have to do with being nothing, thinking that you're nothing, trying to drive one's sense of self into oblivion and feel, and, and the takeoff on that is, and it's, I think it's also one more reason why Musser has suffered in schools, is that people associate Musser with somebody telling you you're terrible, and then pin that on Novartic. Right? All they're doing is practicing Novartic Musser. They told you you're dust. Well, I'm going to you know, tell this kid off, and he'll know, and great, I'm a wonderful practitioner of Novartic as a teacher. No, I don't believe at all that's where Novartic was going. If you read through at least the way I've seen uh, Novartic texts, what I see lying behind the, um, you know, the writings, and the writings are indeed, they're stern. There's definitely a midah hagrura, a sense of strength and, uh, and really strict justice in a certain way, strictness that lies within Novartic Musser, but I think it's going somewhere else. Uh, if the root of Novartic versus Slobodka, I think has less to do with man is great, man is nothing, than uh, nature versus nurture. In other words, from a Slobodkin perspective, there is greatness in you. It was born into you, and what you need to do is uncover it, embrace it, and really live it to its full potential. From the Novartican perspective, actually, it's quite different. You are really a blank slate. Quite a bit has been written onto that blank slate, and what we're looking to do, the whole uh, search for man is nothing, is to wipe out all those preconceptions of who I am and what I am, and know that you can actually be anything. In that sense, what Novartic does is uses a combination of sheer will uh, in and of itself to push oneself forward, and then sheer will to break down barriers, particularly fears that could be holding you back. So a person, Novartic, for example, focused on, uh, I wouldn't say anti-materialism, but non-materialism. Anti-materialism would be, it would be the best thing if you just sleep on the floor and eat a crust of bread and a little bit of water and be done, as per the mission in Perkeavo. That's not this. It's more like you shouldn't need it. And if one knows that one is non-materialistic, I can have and I can enjoy, and the altar writes about this, I can have and I can enjoy, but I shouldn't need. What I've done now is by breaking my fear of what happens if I don't have enough, I've given myself freedom to now be the person that I want to be. And so rather than think of the end goal of Novartic as you are nothing, it's take all the conceptions you have of yourself, what we're going to call now is really part of the ego, Try to wipe them out, not because the end goal is you should be a nothing, God forbid. Rather, once you wipe them out and you are now a clean blank slate, you can now build on that open foundation anything you want and you can be as great as Moshe Rabbeinu because now you're, you're free. You don't have the fears anymore. You don't have the sense of all these different needs. You've shown yourself that all kinds of self-conceptions that were leading you to bad behavior because, well, I'm this person and therefore I need this and people need to treat me this way. None of that. If I'm another, I don't care how you treat me. I'm fine. I can choose how I treat you. I can choose how I engage with the world. I don't have any of these needs. And so the use of sheer will and willpower to break through all those barriers, to tear down everything that I had as a preconceived notion about myself, allows me to be truly free. And so if you ask, to me, the goal of Novartic is less so to be dust. That's just a point along the way. It's a methodology. The goal of Novartic is to be truly free, to be exactly the person that you want to be, to make those decisions, to become the person. So I use Novartic in a variety of ways. Uh, one of them is if I find that I have a Mida, you know, characteristic where I am expecting something from the other and I'm, I'm not getting it and I'm finding myself frustrated, well, I can use Novartic to say, well, did I really have reason to expect that that's how 
this person's necessarily going to treat me. That's actually, who says, magia li klum, right? Like, like, like is, is anything really coming to me? Do I have a right to believe that something is coming my way? No, it's not necessarily. That's one. Second is, what am I afraid of in this situation? If there's something that I'm, I'm hesitating about doing or holding me back, what am I afraid of? Analyze the fear and then say, all right, I'm going to be deeply courageous. I'm going to use sheer will. I'm going to break through and I'm going to find out it's going to be okay. Um, if you've ever uh, read the, uh, the book, The Blessing of a Skinned Knee, you find out that sometimes you know, difficulties can be, challenges can be quite good for a person. And that when we keep ourselves from ever struggling and we keep the child from ever falling down in the playground so they don't learn that they can pick themselves up. Well, Novartic says, let yourself, you know, pick yourself up, see what's scaring you, give it a try. If you, fall, if you win, if you succeed, well, great, you succeeded. And even if you lose, you succeeded. Why? Because you found out that actually falling down wasn't so bad. You're all right. You can pick up and you can go. And then certainly a little more uh, classically, I use Novartic just to get up in the morning. Uh, if I have to get up, it's 5.30 in the morning. It's time to get up. There's a voice in my head, Slavatka, telling me, Judah, you're such a great guy. You can rise now. That's not helping. I just press snooze. Novartic is saying, get up now. And so I get up. I really think one of the most fascinating uh, parts of this conversation is the focus on the experiential. Um, you mentioned to me sort of offline, we were talking about, you know, Musser and sort of uh, different schools of thought. Uh, the idea that, you know, one of the unique features of Rupert Solanter was his sort of innovation that it wasn't sufficient just to sort of think and by extension becoming better, but you actually had to do something bodily had to put your whole sort of uh, body into it. And, and I'm curious, just sort of maybe as one last question, um, in terms of thinking about experiences, educational, personal, familial, whatever it is, which can also be incorporated in terms of thinking about a more holistic, Musser-oriented lifestyle. I know people go like on uh, silent retreats, people go on meditative uh, you know, getaways, et cetera, et cetera. But it seems like there is some power to the bodily experience encountering something, which will then sort of help a person really uh, you know, confront his own anxieties and by extension, try and overcome them. So I know you're somebody who likes to hike and you do much more intensive hiking than I do. But do you also see sort of these types of larger sort of experiential elements of your life as being part of this larger Musser quest? Meaning it's not, you send me pictures of you, you know, hiking in these really incredible places around the world. I'm just imagining you, you know, sitting there on top of a mountain and you're not just sort of admiring, you know, Marabu Mahasecha Hashem, but I have to imagine there's a part of you that uses that as an opportunity to really think about yourself and sort of where are you in the larger world. So maybe we could just end by a few minutes of reflection on how much do you think um, getting people out in nature, getting people out of the Beit Midrash, and actually trying to dialogue and use some type of stimula to experience uh, what you're describing would be part of the Musser vision? 100%, and you've actually um, just kind of revealed something behind my hiking. I don't really, uh, haven't spoken about this whole, a great deal. Um, but the answer is yes. Uh, in a great book about Rabbi Shal Salanter, Emmanuel Etkes, I think it's in the last chapter, uh, talks about how the Musser movement, you know, in moving beyond the mind as the sole space of personal development and decision making, uh, talks about a bit there how Rabbi Shal Salanter really brought this into the whole of the persona and that really all different experiences can be used as muster pieces. So for example, I'm, I enjoy reading articles about successful businesses. And I'll, I'll come back to your you know, hiking example in a moment, but when I, when I look at an article about what makes a great business, a great company, what it is, so that's very quick, it's very easy to apply that 
to the multivariable environment of the human personality as well. And so great businesses have you know, leaders that are focused and they know what they want to do and they're really keeping their focus on that. Um, they have you know, teams that work well together. Well, what does that tell me about life? And so on and so forth. And part of what Eki says is that the genius of Rabbi Shal Salanter was saying, you can really learn Musser from everything and take examples from other parts of life. The classical piece that you see, for example, in the Mishnah Bura, that, well, how would you dress if you were standing before a king? Okay, well, therefore, I will now dress this way. Well, what if you take that model, says Rishel Salanter, and bring it into the rest of your life? What have I learned from all different other experiences that I can now bring into my character behavior, and my character and my behavior? Now, specifically when climbing mountains, so I will tell you that for me, a mountain climb is a combination of cross between Rav Dessler's Mechtav Meliahu and Navardic. Uh, a few years ago, probably the most physically challenging experience of my life was climbing Mount Princeton in uh, southwestern Colorado, south central Colorado. Uh, it was just a bear of a climb. You just you keep walking. Now there are series. The United States has uh, lower forty-eight, about sixty some odd fourteen thousand foot peaks. But fourteen thousand foot peaks differ from one to another widely by the terrain and the steepness and exactly what it is you have to deal with. And for a variety of reasons. Princeton was impossible. Uh, it was actually not even as pretty as some of the other mountains that I've been privileged to be on. And as I was walking, exhausted, I gave up, frankly, at about 13,000 feet. I told my climbing buddies, you guys keep going. And it, it's, it's a hike. It's an intense hike, but a hike nonetheless. Um, that particular mountain, we were not using any ropes or anything like that. I told them, go on. I'm done. I'm just, I'm tapping out. And I sat there for a little while. And then about half an hour later, I said, what am I doing? I can try this. So first of all, that's a Musser principle in and of itself of picking up and trying again. Great. And as I was walking, I admit I was, you know, the, the uh, lack of oxygen, I was getting a little bit dizzy and I just kept putting one foot in front of the other. And in my own mind, it became a metaphor for other struggles that I have in life or that I've worked through or that I frankly, frankly was working through at that moment. And I was using the climb as a physical manifestation of endurance to deal with things that were difficult. And I have very distinct memories, somewhere between about 13,500 feet and a little over 14 where the peak was, of I was climbing alone, my friends were ahead of me, they didn't actually know that I was catching up to them. And step by step, what I was doing was put a foot in front of the other, I will not give up, I will not give up. I am using sheer will to power through, I will not give up on, and the answer was not Mount Princeton. It was, I will not give up on this particular cause, this particular challenge that I happened to have been dealing with at the time. And I came down from the mountain and I told my wife afterwards, I said, that was really an extraordinary climb because it really wasn't about Princeton. It was, a, it was an internal climb. And that there's a section in, uh, I have to remember, it's either the fourth or fifth chalik of Mechtav Meliyahu, where Rav Dessler says that part of what Musser brought to the world is the use of imagination. The Yetzir Hara is all too happy to tell you that whatever, let's say, food you wanted to try that isn't kosher, it's going to be the best thing ever. You never taste anything like that. And then if a person stumbles and actually does eat it, then they often find that eh, it was okay. It wasn't exactly. The temptation didn't really live up to the vision of the Yetzirah. So Dessler says, use the imagination in exactly the opposite way. Tell yourself, oh, if I go to shul, it's going to be the best davening ever. Oh my gosh, if I go to learn now, if I go and I'm kind to somebody now, I'm going to feel so good. I'm going to use my imagination to plug that in. And that he draws from and says, like, if you think about experiences in life, it's going to be incredible. And I see that when I, when I climb, one of the things I'll do beforehand is take a look at photographs from the peak in advance on my phone, because then I tell myself with every step, 
I'm getting closer. It's going to be amazing. The first climb that I did was uh, of this sort was Mount Whitney, which is the highest peak in the lower 48, and had the distinction because I happened to be a little bit taller than my two climbing friends. Uh, my keepa at that moment was the highest thing in the lower lower 48 of the United States because there I was at the top of Mount Whitney. Now, between 12 and 13,000 feet, Whitney has an area called the 99 switchbacks. It's, it's literally what its name suggests, just back and forth, back and forth, going up, 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 and it's a killer. Your lungs are burning, your legs are tired, you just want to stop. And during that time, while we're going up, I just kept telling myself, remember what the peak looked like. Remember that you're going to be at the top of this country. And then you're going to be looking down. Below Mount Whitney is Death Valley, which is the lowest part of the United States. So it's the longest or, or taught, like uh, most extensive vertical that you could possibly see in the United States in the lower 48. And using Rodessler's principle, kept telling myself, one foot in front of the other because it's going to be incredible. Well, exactly that idea that for me it's hiking, for somebody else it could be something else, but that various life experiences are manifestations and opportunities to live out a psychological reality and a Musa reality that lets you say, oh, this is going to be amazing, or you know, using the imagination, or I, you know, what I learned from this experience, the way in which this you know, still inspires me to this day, can inspire me in my character development much as it inspired me just in a general sense at the time of. It's actually really fascinating. Um, Rastalvechik and Halachic Man, he describes Halachic Man as somebody who, when he sees an ocean, he thinks of a mikvah, right? And when he sees a sunset, he thinks of Shkia Sachama. So I just realized that Rav Judah Dardik is uh, not necessarily a Halachic Man, but he's Muslim Man. That when he goes to Yosemite National Park, he only thinks of Rav Dessler. And when he goes to Utah, he only thinks of Rousseau Salanter. That for you, Rav Judah, the entire world is seen through a priori Muslim principles. But in all seriousness, I want to thank Rav Judah for taking the time to join us on the Tzarek Iyun podcast. This has been an extraordinarily both informative and inspiring conversation. Thanks again, Rav Judah. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Tzarek Iyun, please share it with others. Also, might appreciate being part of this conversation. If you haven't yet, please rate, review, and of course, don't hesitate to be in touch with any questions, comments, and topic suggestions at oraitapodcast at gmail.com. This is Sarich Iyun, a podcast of Yeshivat Oraita.